0: Go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 19. That's on page 903. This is still part of Jesus's high priestly prayer. We've been in this prayer, in this chapter for a couple of weeks. And we're going to continue. So John 17, 9 through 19. To the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit as we come to your word this morning. Father, give us gracious instruction as we turn to you and are taught by you so that we can know you and know how to walk before you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. When we hear the phrase, you can't go wrong, I think we all understand what that means. It means something will always be a good idea. Something will always be acceptable. If you can't go wrong, with something, it means you can't fail. It's a guaranteed win when you can't go wrong. For example, if you are ever called to lead or host any kind of youth event, you cannot go wrong by ordering a bunch of pizzas. It's, it's just a, a fail-safe. Or for, for another example, guys, if you want to know what to get your wife for your anniversary, you cannot go wrong with a dozen red roses. It's a classic. It never fails. You can't go wrong. There are some things that will always be a good idea. We, we are still in Jesus' high priestly prayer, and in verses 9 through 19, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for three things. Here they are. Perseverance, that they be kept from the evil one, And that they are sanctified. That's what Jesus prays for. And because Jesus prays for these things, we can't go wrong in praying for them as well. If Jesus thought it was important enough to include these three things in his high priestly prayer, then we can't go wrong in praying for these things, in desiring these things, and in pursuing these things in our Christian walk in our Christian life. So that's the big idea. That's where we're going today in this, in this passage. Those three things, perseverance, kept from the evil one, and sanctification. But before we end, we're also going to talk about one way where it's possible to go wrong. Because just like we can't go wrong with praying for and seeking these things, there is, there is a way that, that people can go wrong. And we're going to talk about that. So, before Jesus introduces this first prayer request for perseverance, he states who specifically he is praying for. Verse 9 I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am praying for them, but not for the world? Who is the them? that Jesus is praying for? Well, for sure, the 11 disciples that are present in the original context, context, yes, absolutely. But also for all who will come to believe in Jesus. It says, for those whom you have given me, all believers have been given to the Son by the Father. And also later on, it's not in our passage, it's just outside of it. In verse 20, we'll get to it, Lord willing, next week. He explicitly states that he's praying for all believers. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He means their word, the 11 disciples, the apostles' word, which ultimately is written down for us and codified in the New Testament. The the Bible, those who will believe through the word of God. So this is talking about all believers. The them is believers. The original disciples as well as believers today. And the world is a reference to everyone else. Everyone outside of Christ. Unbelievers. So the meaning is this. I am praying for those who follow me. For those who put their faith in me. For those who repent and believe in me. I am not praying for the world. Or to put it even more concisely, I am praying for believers I am not praying for unbelievers. How does that hit you? How does that strike you on, on your ears? If you understand the Bible, it makes perfect sense. As followers of Christ who are familiar with God's word, we should be sitting, nodding in agreement, say, yep, yeah, that's, that's exactly how it works. That, that sounds like it's in accordance with the rest of the teaching of scripture. This is how God deals with, savingly, with, with his, his people. But if you're an unbeliever, this may rub you the wrong way. This may sound wrong. This may sound offensive. This may not be inclusive enough. The world does not want to hear or believe that humanity is divided into two groups based on faith in Jesus Christ. Yet this verse screams That humanity is divided into two groups based on faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the end of verse 9 is teaching for they are yours, they. Verse 10 continues, all mine are yours and yours are mine. These, These are the two groups those who are in Christ and those who are in the world, believers, unbelievers. There are only two groups. And Jesus says, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world. Yes. Group, this group, no, that group. And this is one of the places where God makes it clear that all humanity is, is not lumped into one big mixing bowl. Uh, at any given time on the face of the earth, some are saved and some are not. Some have their sins forgiven, some do not. Some are in Christ by faith, some are not. Some are being prayed for by Jesus. Others are not being prayed for by Jesus. So that's the first thing that jumps out at us in this passage. Jesus is very upfront, he's very direct about who he is praying for and who he is not praying for and the dividing line is faith in Christ. Now let's look at what Jesus prays for. Verse 11, perseverance. This is number one, perseverance. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one, when he says, "Keep them in your name," we're still using the word "name" in that expanded sense that we talked about last week. He's not just talking about um, the name of God, his personal name. He's talking about all of God. He's talking about everything that, that's been revealed to us about God, everything there is about God. So he's praying for believers to continually remain as God's people. He's praying for them to continue in Christ keep them in you and in me, that they may be one, even as we are one, to remain firmly in full fellowship with God. Jesus is praying that they do not fall away. He's praying for their perseverance. Perseverance is one of the great doctrines of the faith. This is one of those doctrines of grace that we should all be familiar with. Perseverance of the saints, that is the P, And the reformed acronym TULIP that stands for each of those five doctrines of grace. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then P, perseverance of the saints. And then this doctrine teaches that once God does a work in your heart, once the Holy Spirit does that regenerating work in your heart, you cannot lose your salvation. It is impossible. The, the, the possibility of someone losing their salvation that God saves and regenerates does not exist. That's how certain it is. It's been said of, of this doctrine when talking about salvation, here's an easy, pithy way to remember it. If you have it, then you can't lose it. If you lose it, you never had it to begin with. That's just an easy way to talk about perseverance of the saints. And Jesus prays for his Disciples to remain in him and persevere. Have you ever thought that one of the reasons that you cannot lose your salvation is because the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you to persevere? Do you think it's possible for anyone to stay saved under their own power without Jesus Christ praying for their perseverance? This is what he's praying for. And what better time to tell them that he's praying for them. He's been physically with them for three years, but that is about to change. He is leaving. He is on the way out. He's going to leave the world and they're going to be without his physical presence. What, what a time for them to, to hear this and know that he's praying for their perseverance. It, it's as if they were been, uh, they've were they all been on the construction site together for three years and Jesus has been down in the trench with the, with the shovel and his gloves on doing the work. And they, they've been kind of standing around watching or, or, or just kind of like leaning on their shovels. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, uh, he gets out of the pit, takes his gloves off and says, you're up. I'm leaving. Go ahead and get to work. I, I thought you were going to do this. No, it's your turn. It's your turn. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. They're going to remain behind in the world. What kind of world is it? A world that hates them, John 15. A world that persecutes them. That's the world that they're remaining in. So they need Jesus praying for their perseverance. It's one thing to have been in the temple, uh, on the temple mount, on the, in the colonnades, in the t- in these areas where Jesus was going head-to-head with the Jewish leaders while they stand a safe distance back or 10 feet behind going, oh yeah, look at him go. Okay, you're going to be now standing toe-to-toe with the Jewish leaders. You're going to be dealing with the Romans. You're up, and it's going to get hot. So I'm going to pray for your perseverance. They need this prayer so they don't fall away under the kind of persecution and the circumstances that is going to, uh, that they're going to encounter after he's gone. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Again, expanded sense in, in in God, in Christ. Which you have given me, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus kept everyone that belonged to him And they remained in him because it was Jesus doing the keeping and the guarding. Jesus cannot fail at anything except the sign of destruction. So Judas, Jesus' betrayer, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So it's not as if Jesus failed to keep and guard all his disciples. This isn't the case where Jesus says, well, you know, I, I did my best, but... There's always going to be a few bad apples. You know, there's always one rotten egg. and, and you know It happens. No, Judas was never given to the son by the father. Judas was not among the elect. And Judas' actions were a fulfillment of scripture. Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, literally sat around the table at the last supper, has lifted his heel against me. That's a way of talking about betrayal and becoming an enemy. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is a statement about the timing of Jesus' teaching and, and instruction and, and his prayer for them. He's praying these things aloud in their presence so that they are comforted, prepared, filled with joy. They're about to head into the world flying solo without Jesus with them anymore. He's taking the, the work gloves off. It's their turn. And he's praying for their perseverance. So that's number one. Jesus prays for their perseverance. Number two, Jesus prays that his people will be kept from the evil one. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. None of this is new. We've seen this before. This is John 15. Abide in my words. The world hates you. I am not of the world. Uh, You are not of this world. We've seen this before, John 15. This is a review. Very similar to the content of of chapter 15. And then, just a minute, skip down to verse 16, and notice that that is an exact duplicate of the end of verse 15 fourteen, they are not of this world not of the world just as I am not of the world. You can see the end of verse fourteen says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse sixteen says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now why would John arrange this material and place the exact same thing within the span of three verses, right at the beginning in verse one, and right at the end in verse three, to emphasize Verse 2, to put emphasis on what comes in between. The reason verses 14 and 16 are a mirror image of each other are to emphasize the content in the second verse. Pay attention to what is sandwiched in between these two repeated verses. And then here it is, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Believers are not removed from the world as soon as they are saved. And many many a person has asked the question before, well, why not? That would be a lot better for everybody, wouldn't it? That would be a lot better for me if I could just be uh, pulled directly from the world. As soon as somebody gets saved and regenerated and becomes a believer in Christ, let's just fast forward to that, that glorification stage at the end. Let's just get out of this world and, and go somewhere where it's going to be much more pleasant for me, where I can enjoy God and glorify him forever. Why do I need to stay around? Well, let's think about that for a minute. What if, what if that were true? What if the moment someone is regenerated and, and, and enters the kingdom of God that they're whisked away? Well, first of all, there would, no, there would not be a visible church on the earth there would be apostate churches, there would be all kinds of religion going on, but there would not be a true church on the earth, all believers would be gone. The sa- it would be impossible for the sacraments to be uh, practiced <laughs> faithfully. There would be no gathering, for true gathering for worship on the Lord's day, we'd all be gone. People, uh, there would be no preaching. No, no genuine believers, you're not going to have genuine preaching, that, which means the only way someone else could come to faith would be by reading or hearing the word of God, being read. And how long would secular publishers continue to print something that wasn't being sold, that people weren't buying because they're just not interested in it? And who would have written it to begin with? If, if the apostles had been yanked off the earth as soon as they, or maybe even let's just say after resurrection when Jesus ascended, the apostles ascended. Who would write the New Testament? An unbeliever? And that's just pushing the idea to its logical conclusions from a spiritual standpoint. We could go on and on. There would be no longing for a heavenly home. There would be no earthly service to our king. We it just wouldn't work God knows what he's doing and he knows what he's doing when he keeps us in the world and that's why he's praying while you're in this world while you are in this this hostile persecuting world that hates you I am praying that you would be kept from the evil one so what does that look like to be kept from evil means to be kept from false doctrine It means to be kept from yielding to temptation. It means to be kept from developing habitual sin. It means to be kept from becoming too prideful and thinking highly of ourselves on this earth. It means to be kept from divisions in the church. It means to be kept from sexual immorality. It means to be kept from greed and avarice and coveting. It means to be kept from adopting worldly opinions and a worldly mindset and worldly thinking. It means to be kept from marriages that look like worldly marriages and parenting that looks like worldly parenting. For for students, it means going through middle school and high school in a way that is not the same that the world goes through middle school and high school. It means being kept from doubting scripture. It means being kept from fearing man more than God. It means being kept from spiritual apathy or or laziness or or just kind of the surrendering, "I give up attitude. It, it, It means... To be kept from anything, any, anywhere where Satan can get a foothold in our life, any form of, of sin or disobedience to God's word. That's what it means. It means to be kept from that. To be kept from, from sin. And at the same time, this, this teaching, it, it should be obvious, does not mean that we are to become total isol- isolationists. That, that's not what this, this means. Uh, recently I was doing some research in church history for, for a brother and uh, ran across a place called St. Catherine's Monastery this is, this is built in 500's so it's mid first uh, the first millennial uh, time and after the Christ, time of Christ and it's still there today and for the vast majority of its existence it's over on the Sinai Peninsula it, it allowed no one in and no one really got out It was built with an eight foot thick and 36 uh, foot high wall completely surrounding the monastery with no doors. You could not just walk in. There there were no doors. The only way in was to have someone up top lower a net by rope and then one person at a time could climb in the net and then they would pull that up and then let you in. And they wouldn't just let anyone in. They only let in people that had a reason for being there, um, other... uh, Believers, other people that need to use the library, you have to have a legitimate reason. So, for the most part, they were completely cut off from the world. Is that the kind of life Jesus is calling to us? Uh, calling us to? I would argue no. I don't think so. It might be helpful to go there for a time if you need to do research or look at some ancient uh, manuscripts of the New Testament or something like that, but for a way of life that's not being in the world that's being on earth but it's not being in the world it's not being in the world system and that's what God calls us to to be in the world but not of the world if you've been in the church for any amount of time you've probably heard this mantra it's not scripture but it is based firmly on scripture it's based on this passage right here we are to be in the world but not of the world It's been said that we are to put our boat in the water, but we are not to have one drop of water in our boat. He's called us to be in the world, to live amongst the the world system and believers, and at the same time, persevere, stay faithful, and be kept from evil. That's what He's called us to. And He is aware, Jesus is aware that it's not always going to be pleasant. It's going to be difficult. He states that up front several times. And in fact, he knows there are going to be times where we just have to endure being in this world. But like a good leader, he's not asking us to do anything that he has not done first. Hebrews twelve two. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus knows what it's like to endure the world system because he endured first. Let's make it a little more personal. He knows what you have to endure as you go through life. As you live out your Christian life, he is acutely aware of what you personally are enduring as you walk around in this world system with its lies lies. With, with continual blasphemy coming on, on, off the lips of unbelievers. With the unjust laws. He knows. He knows the pressure that you face to walk faithfully in the world. He is aware of that. He knows what you have to endure. And he is praying for you. He's not just praying for the 11 disciples. He is praying for you To be kept from evil as you endure and as you live in the world. That's number two. So he prays for perseverance. He prays for you to be kept from the evil one as you endure in this world. And number three, he prays that his people may be sanctified in the truth, 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. This is his prayer, and to make sure that we know exactly what he's talking about, to remove any ambiguity. He adds, your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to make holy as applied to Christians. Being sanctified and made holy, it means increasingly living a more holy and godly life according to God's word. Our old friend the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it like this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God and we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Sanctification. Alive to righteousness as the Bible defines righteousness. Not as we define it. Not, that is what we think is a good idea, what we think is right. Certainly not what the world says is right. If we think we're going to become better people and we look around to the world to find out, well, what, what does it look like to be a better person? Uh, that's not going to work. We're going to end up walking away from Christ. Jesus is praying that his disciples be made holy by the word of God. He's praying that you be made holy by the word of God the truth there was once a high school school student let's call him John, his name is not John but let's just call him John and John was raised in a Christian home and he was in a high school Sunday school class one Sunday and the teacher was teaching on sanctification and at one point the teacher looked over at John and he said, John what kinds of things are you doing to to actively pursue holiness in your life? John said, what? I I don't know. What do you mean? And the teacher went on to explain what what sanctification is and growing in holiness, and and John said, oh, uh, nobody told me we we had to do that. I, I, I thought we were supposed to believe in Jesus. And then he forgives our sins and, then we, and we get to go to heaven with our die, when we die. And so the teacher went on to explain, yes, that's true, but sanctification is a part of our salvation. We're all to be pursuing it. And he concluded by saying, yeah, I, I hear you, but um, nobody ever told me that I had to do that. See, this Christian high schooler had heard the gospel several times. They, they had heard... Teaching on justification over and over again. They they had been hearing the message, believe in Jesus, and he will forgive your sins since they were five years old in vacation Bible school. But what they didn't hear, or more likely, um, uh, they probably were taught it, they probably just didn't hear it, was that we are also called to sanctification. Justification is a one-time, non-repeatable event. It's the moment when we believe where God declares us righteous based on the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. It happens. It's in the past. For believers, sanctification is an ongoing process that does not end the side of eternity. We continue to grow in holiness, according to God's word, until the day we are brought home with the Lord. Notice that Jesus is not praying for their justification. He's praying for their sanctification. They don't need prayer for their justification. They're justified. They do need prayer for their sanctification because they are not completely made holy. It's an ongoing part of our Christian walk. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God, both preached, written, proclaimed, to convict us of our sin, to correct us, to teach us what is right and true and how to properly follow Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals to us in Scripture what ought to be, And it is this inward spiritual illumination and conviction of the Word that leads to repentance and belief and spiritual growth. Sanctification. It is impossible for someone to be sanctified without the Word of God. And that's why Jesus prays that his disciples be sanctified in truth, in God's Word. It is impossible. To, to grow in holiness without the standard and the norm, without the, the bar of righteousness set before us. How, how else would we know? The world is not going to show us what righteousness is. Only God's word shows us what righteousness is. So let me ask you the same question that was asked of the high schooler. Where in your life are you taking active steps to increase your holiness? Pray and ask God to show you where in your life or in your walk where something's missing that the word of God says should be there. Or pray and ask God to show you in your life where there's something that is there that the word of God says should not be there. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Once again, Jesus never asks us to do something that he hasn't done first. He was in the world. He was sent into the world to serve. Now we are sent into the world to serve. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now in verse 19, the word consecrate, referring to Jesus, and the word sanctified, talking about his disciples, comes from the same root word. It's the same word. It means consecrate, dedicate, sanctify, but there are four slightly different nuanced meanings of that word depending on the context in scripture. That's why um, they're translated differently. That's why if you've got an ESV, you'll see a footnote on verse 19 with notes on, on what those mean in that context. When this word is applied to Jesus, as it is in verse 19, when he is consecrating himself or sanctifying himself for his disciples, it means to consecrate himself for them as an offering. As an offering. In the second half of the verse, the meaning is to be made holy for or to be set apart for holy service to God. So if we put that all together, Jesus is telling them this. And for my disciples' sake... I set myself apart as an offering so that they also may be made holy in truth and set apart for service to God. Are we seeing this? Jesus went to the cross and gave himself as a sacrificial offering not only to forgive your sins so you can go to heaven when you die, but also so that you would be made holy in truth for service to God. So that you would be more and more set apart for service to God. So that you would grow in your holiness according to God's word as you increasingly conform to scripture. That's what he's saying. Let's, let's not be like the unaware high school student who thought salvation was on him, who had, who had these blinders on and thought, oh, okay, Jesus is about saving my sin and I get to go to heaven when I die and that's it and that's all I have to do. And then from this point forward, I can walk wherever I want to walk and the only thing I have to worry about is that I'm forgiven and, and I can do what I want and live my life. no. It's true that you are forgiven. It's true that you are going to heaven when you die. But that's not it. You're also called to holiness. You're called to be sanctified for service to God. Once we are saved, we are no longer our own. We no longer get to define ourselves. We no longer get to live our life. We no longer choose our own path. We no longer decide what we want to think about God. God tells us what we are to think about God. God tells us how we are to live. We are to walk in light of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and grow in holiness and actively progress in our sanctification. How? By the word, the truth. We are to grow in holiness according to God's word. We are to more and more die to sin as the Bible defines sin. We are to more and more grow in righteousness as the Bible defines righteousness. We have to keep coming back to the word. So when Jesus tells them that he wants, he's praying for their sanctification, that's what he's talking about. That's what he means. Now, I said earlier that before we conclude, there is one area that we need to talk about where it is possible to go wrong. We're we're talking about how we can't go wrong by praying for and seeking after and desiring these things. But there is a way to go wrong. Uh, There is a way to go very spiritually wrong. Here's how to get life wrong. Failing to follow Christ. Failing to trust in Jesus Christ. Failing to believe in Jesus. Failing to follow him in lifelong discipleship failing to point your life at the cross and then following him and not looking back and not uh going to the right or the left that's how someone could get life wrong this book is written so that people would believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and by believing in his name they would have life this whole book is written for that purpose to point people to jesus christ faith in christ If you have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you cannot go wrong in doing it. And you can't go wrong in doing it today. This may be, if you put your faith in Christ today, this could be very well be the very first Christmas where you're following the Christ of Christmas. And God promises that all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation will be forgiven. This is possible because on the cross, as a sacrificial offering, he made atonement for sin or covering for sin. He covered sin for all who would believe in him. He took the wrath of God for sin that we deserve. He took it upon himself, paid the penalty. And remember, Jesus fulfilled the law with this perfect life of righteousness that the first Adam and no one else after Adam, including you and me, could ever do. He, he achieved perfect moral righteousness, and he paid the penalty. God says when you trust in Jesus, both of those become yours. The penalty is paid so that you are no longer under the wrath of God, and the perfect righteousness is credited to you or imputed so that when God looks at you he doesn't see your sin he sees the righteousness the perfectness of Jesus Christ and on that basis alone he declares you righteous right with God but it's a faith in Christ alone it's not trusting in your own works it's it's not trusting in the fact that I've been a pretty good person and now I'm just going to add Jesus and then I'm going to be a Christian who's also good no Mm mm-mm No, we're sinners. We deserve hell. All of us do. It's Christ's righteousness alone that allows us to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. You cannot go wrong by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, ever. Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus does not pray for the world. If you're in Christ by faith, then he is praying for you. He is praying for your perseverance. He is praying for you to be kept from the evil one. And he is praying for your sanctification in truth, in God's word. So the final application this morning is asking the question, are we? Are we praying for these things? Are we desiring these things? Are we pursuing these things in our life as we follow Christ Perseverance, keeping far from evil, sanctification and truth by the word of God. You can't go wrong if you believe in Jesus Christ and you cannot go wrong if you are desiring and praying and pursuing these things. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Lord and Savior is praying for us, that, that he has graciously called us and saved us, Father, we praise you that our sin has been forgiven, all of it, past, present, and future. There is nothing that can separate us from you. We praise you because we can never lose our salvation. Father, would you implant in us this desire? Would you give us a full measure of the Holy Spirit that, to, to propel us into further pursuit of holiness according to your word. And may we do this for your glory and for your honor alone. In Jesus' name, Amen.